Good morning to you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read just the first two verses today. Uh, once again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there so you can follow along as I read. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to share time with you together this morning. And, and if we haven't met yet, I would love to meet you after service. Um, do me a favor and make yourself known, though. Uh, we, we love new people. I would love to help you connect in whatever way I can. And uh, the invitation is open to you after service to come up and just say hi. Um, about seven weeks ago, we hit the pause button on our time in the book of Acts. We've been traveling through it for uh, quite some time, and it's good to take breaks. Uh, but we hit pause appropriately to look at uh, the end of John to um, turn our attention to the Easter narrative. Um, after some deep prayer and some consideration and even recommendations, I've actually decided that we're going to hit, we're going to keep the pause button on Acts a little bit longer, uh, for the foreseeable future. And we're going to commit the coming months to studying the book of Second Corinthians. It won't take us as long. Um, and I recognize that this might come as a curveball to you, uh, a little bit of a surprise, but I assure you that I have a method to my madness. Um, and I'll try and explain to you briefly later on why we're doing this, uh, but if you were really just loving our time in Acts, I promise you that eventually we will get back and finish out the last 10 chapters of that book uh, and finish what we started. Uh, for now, though, let's take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Once again, I'll read just the first two verses, and then we'll commit our time to the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that these words that we just read, although written nearly 2,000 years ago, are divinely inspired by you. That you breathed out your word and directed the pen strokes of the apostle Paul's hand. And while these words were written at a specific time, with a specific purpose, to a specific group, in a specific culture, we believe that these words are also for us, and that they are in fact useful to us in our own spiritual growth. And so, Lord, during our time this morning, would your Holy Spirit illuminate your inspired words and would we know your will for your people? In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen. Coincidentally, when we did hit the pause button on Acts, we, we stopped in Acts chapter 18. The, the last story that we worked through uh, was Paul in the city of Corinth. And we studied how he planted uh, this church in Corinth and how he enjoyed fruitful ministry there for a year and a half. And it was, it was so fruitful, in, in fact, that he was actually able to work in Corinth for a year and a half without being persecuted physically like he had been the pattern uh, in the cities prior. And so this was a good experience for Paul. And you can imagine that as Paul spent a considerable amount of time with the people in Corinth, longer than he had been with other churches he had planted, that these people would have a very special place in Paul's heart. 
In fact, if you were to read through his letters to the Corinthians, you would actually find on a couple of occasions that Paul refers to himself as the father of the Corinthians. Now he means this in, in two aspects. First, he is the father to them in that he birthed them. He, uh, spiritually, he was the one that actually planted the church. Um, the church in Corinth would not exist without the hard and laborious work of Paul. Second, he's the father to them in the sense that he provides for them. He provides nourishment, uh, spiritual nourishment that's needed to grow. Now, parents who have raised children know this experience. They know what it's like to nourish and to provide and to be responsible for another human life. And those of you who have older children or grown children know that this process of growth isn't always an experience of bliss. This isn't always an enjoyable experience, especially because something happens in our children as they grow and become more independent, right? As they become more independent and more detached, if you will, from their parents, something changes. When they are young, they accept nourishment from the father. And, and if they don't accept nourishment, at least you can force them to accept the nourishment. You know, it's a, eat this broccoli or you're not going to get any dessert tonight, <laughs> Right? They, uh, they depend on the wisdom and they trust the knowledge of their father. But then something happens right around the age of, let's say, 14. Right? At 14, it doesn't always happen, but in a lot of our children, 14 is around the age when our children suddenly discover that they know everything they need to know about the world. They have all of the answers and they don't need the father anymore or the mother. And through this stage, many teenagers will question the legitimacy of their parents' authority and the legitimacy of their wisdom. And furthermore, this tension will create hardship in a relationship between a father and his children. Oftentimes, children will alienate themselves from their parents because of such attitude. This, in a nutshell, is what has happened between Paul and the Corinthian church. It's a well-documented relationship in Scripture, and it's well-documented that it was quite a rocky relationship. And I want to share with you some necessary background to this relationship, will actually, which will help us understand the context of 2 Corinthians as a whole, why Paul wrote this letter to them. Um, once again, Paul originally planted the church and he enjoyed fruitful ministry there for at least a year and a half. After he left Corinth, he traveled to Ephesus for several years. He set up camp there uh, just east and about three years after he planted the church in Corinth, he received word from in Ephesus that things weren't going well in the Corinthian church. That they were actually participating in things that you wouldn't want a church participating in. And so in response to this, Paul wrote them a letter. And it's a letter that we actually identify as 1 Corinthians. And the purpose of 1 Corinthians, one of the primary purposes was to actually try and correct some of these problems within the church in Corinth. 
Sometime after 1 Corinthians was sent to the church, Paul actually sent his co-worker, Timothy, pretty much to just check on how they were doing. He wanted him to pay a visit. And to Timothy's surprise, things had actually gotten worse. Timothy had found some very disturbing things in the Corinthian church. He had actually found that there was another group of traveling preachers, probably from Jerusalem, who had infiltrated the ranks of the Corinthian church, and they actually sought, for whatever reason, to discredit Paul and his ministry. They just raked him through the mud. And they did this, they influenced the church so much that the, the church actually turned on Paul. They betrayed, they betrayed Paul. They turned their back on him. And so upon hearing this news in Ephesus, Paul actually just drops everything. He changes his plans and he goes to the Corinthian church uh, in an effect to try and hash some of these things out with the church. And in 2 Corinthians 2, which we'll get to eventually, Paul actually describes this particular visit as a painful visit. This is a visit that just absolutely wounded Paul and devastated him because he learned what these other teachers, basically that they were talking trash about and what they were saying. And he learned that they even questioned the validity of his ministry. These other traveling teachers planted seeds of discord against Paul in the hearts of the Corinthian believers by making certain suggestions which deliberately undermined him. They, they, they made assumptions or they were planting these seeds in the Corinthian church questions uh, like if Paul is legitimate, if he is who he says he is, why is there so much suffering in his life? Everywhere the guy goes, he seems to face persecution and he seems to face suffering. Wouldn't God protect a messenger of his from all of that? Wouldn't somebody like Paul, if he's truly from God, wouldn't he be shielded from such persecution? Our God is one of victory, right? And triumph and success. And Paul, he doesn't fit that picture. Paul's weakness and his suffering doesn't fit into that. Also, if Paul is the real deal, then why is his ministry so dull? He is just so uninspired. There's other ministry, there's other people out there doing sensational, flashy things, but not Paul. He barely does any miracles. So he clearly doesn't have the spirit because nothing exciting ever happens in his ministry. And oh, by the way, why is... Paul's preaching so boring, right? He, he sounds like a tough guy on paper when he writes you these letters, but when he's in person, he's just boring. Right? He, he's, he, he lacks so much charisma. He's, he's not entertaining. He doesn't tell funny jokes. He's not even a very gifted preacher. He can't possibly be a messenger of God when there's so many others that are so much better and so much more eloquent than him. Oh, and by the way, why doesn't he carry any letters of recommendations from other churches? Right? Are other churches not willing to vouch for Paul and his ministry? Why won't others speak on behalf of him of his successes? Does he just not have any? Are they not willing to speak to his work? 
Believe it or not, those were all questions that were asked within the Corinthian church that were being thrown around at the time. And that's not even all of them. And so we quickly see that this isn't an attack on Paul's ministry, but it's actually a personal attack on Paul himself. They rejected Paul in a very public fashion during this painful visit. And Paul leaves and he's wounded. And then he writes them another letter. Right? He, he was actually planning on visiting them again, but decided not to visit them because he didn't want to experience that kind of pain again. So he writes this letter that 2 Corinthians actually calls a severe letter. We don't have this letter, unfortunately. We don't know what it said, but we get the inclination and impression that it was a rather, it was a rather scathing letter in response to his painful visit. Now, thankfully, according to 2 Corinthians, they receive this scathing letter very well, right? And not all of them, there are still holdouts, but a good portion of the Corinthian church, once having heard Paul out in this letter, actually repents and they want to reconcile with Paul. And this is where Second Corinthians comes in. in. In this letter that we will study through all the way to the end, Paul is, is willing to reconcile. And he is thankful for those that did repent. However, there's been great damage done. And Paul still feels the need to legitimize his ministry. And beyond his own uh, personal, beyond his own personal skin in the game, beyond that, with the Corinthian church being so easily swayed by these other flashy and impressive and more eloquent teachers, Paul is actually concerned that the church doesn't understand the true nature of gospel ministry. Paul's saying, I'm not worried about myself and my own reputation as much as you don't understand what true gospel ministry looks like. You've actually accepted another gospel, another gospel that actually contradicts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through these other teachers, the church in Corinth has developed a culture that didn't just undermine Paul, but to Paul's estimation, actually undermines the gospel itself. Now with this, this threat that they experienced is still very, very prevalent in churches today. This is something that we still uh, have to combat. This is what one commentator writes in regards to this. They wrote that in a day and age, speaking about our context and culture, in a day and age when there is a similar emphasis on spiritual achievements, financial empires, miraculous gifts, and performance skills in the pulpit, we do well to heed the warning of how easy it is to end up communicating another Jesus and another spirit and another gospel. It's so easy to get off the rails and buy into something else, something fake that's not the gospel. So with that in mind, what we'll see in 2 Corinthians is just a deeply, probably Paul's most deeply passionate and emotional letter because it's personal for him. He has skin in the game. He absolutely pours out his heart to these Corinthian believers in an effort to describe what does the true nitty gritty nature of the gospel look like? 
What does gospel ministry really look like? And through all of this, Paul wants to explain a main theme in the book is the relationship between suffering and divine power. Paul will say, yes, there there is power in the gospel. There is victory. There is triumph. But that it's power and it's victory and it's triumph, as odd as it sounds, is most prominently displayed in our weakness and in our suffering. This is the central theme to 2 Corinthians that's present in every single chapter that we will walk through. It's the very paradoxical nature of the gospel that our suffering is the vehicle that God uses to display his power and his victory. Kent Hughes, he was a senior pastor at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, in regards to this. He writes that the gospel does not ride on health and wealth, but on weakness. The gospel, the ministry of the spirit is not one of splash and flash, but of meekness and weakness. The gospel does not need the front pages of newspapers, he writes. And when it brags, it brags of weakness and of God's power behind the weakness. And this is the reason why I would like to work through 2 Corinthians. Because if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us has been through a rather traumatic experience coming through a pandemic. And even above and beyond the normal stresses of a pandemic, um, there are many of us in this very room that are struggling, that are hurting, that feel weak. We get prayer requests every single week and we pray for you by name with the leadership team every single week. And some of these prayer requests that come in are just absolutely heart-wrenching. I, I share in your pain. I read these and I hurt for you. I have cried tears for you. It hurts. We are just inundated with suffering and hardship and weakness right now. And if I'm truly honest, this past season of life has been the most painful season for me personally and my wife and our family. And we can relate to Paul. N.T. Wright, who's a biblical scholar, um, actually says that Paul displays symptoms of depression here in 2 Corinthians. So if you're sitting here and you're saying, I am clinically depressed, I have been diagnosed with that, you can read Paul in 2 Corinthians and be in very good company. And it would be so easy for us to let this season of suffering just absolutely paralyze us, to to let our downcast soul deceive us about the true nature of the gospel and who God is and who Jesus is and what he came and did. This is what Psalm 42 speaks to. Psalm 42 has been a psalm that has been written on my heart for the last several months. Uh, And I want to read just verse 3 from you. I would encourage you to uh, commit this one to memorization. But verse 3, the psalmist describes this predicament. He writes, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? 
What a deep depiction of sorrow and pain and and sobbing. The, the, The psalmist is saying, I am crying so much that I can't help but taste my tears every single day. Right? As much as I eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I am tasting my tears. They've been my food. They've been my source of nutrition. And you know what? They taunt me. My own tears, my own emotions, my own sorrow taunts me. Where is your God? Where is your God? If you're really crying these tears, how can your God possibly be present? It taunts me asking me that question. And if we aren't anchored to the true nature of the gospel, if we aren't anchored to to, to the understanding that there is power in weakness, that there is victory in our suffering, then once again, it would be very easy for us to jump ship and abandon hope and believe that God is not really there. In 2 Corinthians, Paul wants to set the record straight. He wants to talk back to his tears, shout out and say, no, no, let me show you where our God is. Our culture, we actually try to avoid pain. We go to great lengths to avoid pain and to avoid suffering. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, no, don't avoid your suffering. Don't avoid your weakness, but lean into it. Because that's where God and his power are most present in the suffering and weakness. That is where his power is displayed. And so if you've ever felt the extreme emotional pain of life, then 2 Corinthians is for you. If you've ever been tormented by a physical injury or physical shortcomings, then 2 Corinthians is for you. If you have ever had your character unjustifiably called into question and your name raked through the mud, then 2 Corinthians is for you. If you have ever had experienced the pain of relationships, hurting, broken relationships, then 2 Corinthians is for you. If you have ever felt weak, that you are not up for the task at hand, that you are not good enough or strong enough or smart enough or gifted enough, then 2 Corinthians is for you. I don't think there's a single person in this room that couldn't answer one of those questions positive. I don't think there's a single person living that hasn't experienced that to some degree in their life. And so let's journey through this book together. We'll take a look at the first two verses briefly with the remainder of our time. Once again, this is a letter, all right? And uh, in our culture, when we send letters, we have a standard for how we send the letter and how we uh, greet somebody. We always um, address the sender first, and then we write the body of the text. And at the very end, uh, we we sign our name from so-and-so. In these first two verses, uh, we come across a traditional way to start a letter in the first century world. It was very similar back then that they would include the name of the, the recipient and the sender, but their order would be a little bit different. They would actually sign their name first as the sender and then address the recipient. And so in this letter, we have a sender and we have a recipient. And it would be very easy to gloss over these first two verses without giving any consideration of what Paul writes. But if we did that, we would miss some pretty profound claims. 
how Paul describes himself and how Paul describes his recipients actually teach us about the context of the letter as a whole. Once again, this is a fairly standard way that Paul began his letters, uh, but his letters do have slight variations, and the variations are important. The variations say something. The way in which Paul would address himself as the sender uh, or identify himself would be a reference either to his current circumstances or it would be in reference to what this book, what this letter is going to be about. It would set the stage for it, if you will. So for example, if you were to turn to the book of Philemon, Paul, he identifies himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus because he was literally writing the book of Philemon, the letter to Philemon from prison. Similarly, if you were to go to Philippians, he calls himself a servant a servant of Christ Jesus, because he would go on in the letter to call on the community to emulate Jesus's servant humility. And so how Paul identifies himself here in second Corinthians is important. What does he say about himself? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What does this mean? That term apostle, it literally means to be sent out, one who is sent out. In the informal sense, it was anyone who is commissioned or authorized to carry out a personal mission on the behalf of someone else. And so there's this representative feature of being an apostle and that you are representing someone, but it also has and carries an authoritative feature meaning that the one who is sent out, the apostle, could actually act and make decisions with the authority of the one who personally sent them. In the New Testament, this term is actually used in two different ways. There's lowercase apostle, which speaks to just any messenger who is sent out on behalf of somebody else. But there is also what we would call an upper clay, an upper case of an apostle, which is a very specific title and a very specific office. Um, these were the men who were personally commissioned by Jesus in the flesh himself. And so this is a limited office because there's only a small group of men that this has ever happened to. Nobody can be an apostle anymore in the formal capital A apostle sense, right? This was just a specific group of guys. And these men held the highest authority in the first century church because it was an authority bestowed on them by Jesus himself in the flesh. We know from our time in Acts that Paul is one of those apostles. That Jesus himself met Paul on the road to Damascus and personally commissioned him to take the gospel to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world. Paul is saying, look, I represent Jesus. He himself has called me. And not only am I a representative of Christ Jesus himself, uh, this actually came about by the will of God. What is the will of God? The will of God is what God intends to bring about in his plan for creation. And so Paul is reminding the church in Corinth, hey, Jesus has personally called me. Jesus, your Messiah, the Christ himself has personally called me. And the origin of this call finds itself 
in the very footing of God's sovereign plan. That this is what God desired to happen. Paul's call as an apostle was the very plan of God. In introducing himself this way, he's reminding the reader that you can challenge his ministry and you can challenge his gifting and you can challenge his ability and his experience all the want. But at the end of the day, Paul says, my, my calling isn't grounded in, in my own initiative. It's not grounded in my ministry successes or my ability or my experience. It's grounded in Christ. And it's a part of God's perfect plan. And with this, we see that God, Paul's concern is really not in the Corinthian church rejecting him, but that they are actually rejecting Jesus and the will of God. And rejecting Jesus and rejecting God's will is not a good place to live. See, Paul writes to them, 2 Corinthians, not because his feelings are hurt, not because he has, he's on some kind of major ego trip, His own self-defense through this book isn't for the sake of his own career or reputation, but for the sake of the gospel, which has been entrusted to his care from Jesus under God's sovereignty. Paul's saying there's so much more at stake here than merely repairing my reputation. So he tells him, you want to go? Let's go. I'll give an account. I will give a defense of my ministry and my work. I will answer to every single one of your criticisms, but let me remind you who you're dealing with before we do this. And it's not me that you're dealing with. You're going to have to take it up with the one who sent me. And ultimately, I don't answer to you as a church. Paul takes the high ground. Right? When, you, when, you, when you're in a disagreement or an argument or in a battle with somebody, it's often a defense mechanism to try and take the high ground because there's leverage in the high ground. And this is exactly what Paul's doing in this argument. He's taking the high ground. He's, he's, he's elevating himself up to, to the, the position. He's not claiming to be God, but he's saying, God's the one who sent me. I'm taking the high ground. That's who I am as the sender of this letter. But then he does something very interesting as he addresses the Corinthian church as a whole. And the receiver, not only does he elevate himself to the high ground, he elevates them as a church to the high ground. Right? Because not only does Paul not ultimately answer to the Corinthian church, he reminds the Corinthian church, you guys don't ultimately answer to me as a church. This is what he communicates to the church when he addresses them as the receiver in the letter. He doesn't address them just as the church that is at Corinth. No, he addresses them as the church of God that is at Corinth. In other words, more literally, he he says, this is the church of God. This is God's church that has its being in the city. It it exists in Corinth, but it it is the church of God. You see, Paul reminds them that they are, they themselves are under divine ownership. Although Paul was the one that planted the church, fathered the church, the church is not his. It's God's church. There's divine ownership here. This is why when I am out and about and people find out that I'm a pastor here at FAC, I try so hard never to refer to FAC as my church. 
Because FAC is not my church. It's God's church. Funny story, when I said that first service, uh, there was someone in the congregation, very sincere heart. They said, praise the Lord. (laughs) I didn't know how to take that. (laughs) So yes, praise the Lord, because if I did own the church, we'd be a hot mess right now. I don't own the church. God owns the church. And I just happen to be a wonderful part of a community of believers here. With this, Paul ties the nature of the church with the nature of his call. Just as God sent me, you are under God's ownership. God is the author of Paul's ministry and the owner of the Corinthian church. And from here, if you're sensible, which you are, you will see a trail of logic. If the church rejects Paul, they then in turn reject God. And if they are rejecting God, they are rejecting the very one who has possession of them as a church. We put two and two together and we recognize that it's not Paul's legitimacy at stake here. It's actually the legitimacy of the church that's at stake. And so Paul illuminates this contradiction. And he pokes all sorts of holes in their argument in the very first verse of the letter. Yet given these contradictions and the context, it's remarkable and maybe surprising to us that not only are they the church of God, but he also refers to them as saints in verse 1. He refers to the saints of Achaia, which is, Really, the greater region, we'd call it modern-day Greece. Uh, Corinth is the capital of Achaia, and he's not writing just to the church in Corinth, but, but all of the saints in that greater region. In the church of Corinth, you guys are enveloped in that. You are saints. Nowadays, especially in our area, when you hear the word saint, you associate that title or that term or that reference with somebody who is exceptionally moral. They're the super believer if you will, that's reserved for somebody who has attained a certain level of spirituality and holiness. It's, it's, it's reserved only for the good people, right? But in scripture, which is what we should go by, that word saint is never used in that sense. The, the term saint is actually related to the word sanctified, which means to be made holy, to be set apart. And scripture is clear that all believers in Jesus are set apart, that they are holy, not because of what they've done or achieved, but because of what Jesus has done and achieved for them on their behalf. And so when scripture refers to saints, it's not speaking about a very select special group of people out of the rank and file of everybody else of believers, but rather it's referring to all believers. It's actually the most common designation in scripture for all believers. And so even sitting here today, if you believe in Jesus, you are a saint. I know that your husband or your wife might not agree with that, but you are a saint. You are holy. You are set apart. You are sanctified because you have taken on Jesus's holiness, just as he took on your sinfulness. 
But there is a strange duality when it comes to the topic of holiness. In, in that, yes, we have been made holy. However, we are also at the same time called to become holy. And the reason being is this, is that sin, while we have been saved from our sin, we've been saved from the ultimate punishment of sin, we're no longer objects of God's wrath, sin still has an influence on our hearts. And sin still has an influence on the way we look at the world. And so, yes, you've become holy, but we are also called to become more holy. And we see that holiness is something that God has done for us, in the salvation sense, but it is also something that he continues to do for us in the sanctification sense. And so Paul writes this opening verse referring to the Corinthian church as saints with great irony. And he's saying these saints in Corinth, you guys are holy ones, but these saints had sinned greatly against Paul. They treated Paul like dirt that he calls them the church of God. They are saints. And this shows us that our sainthood is not because of their sainthood, is not because of their actions or behavior, but because they were in Christ. You see, when we become saved, we automatically become citizens in the kingdom of God. And our citizenship in the kingdom of God is not dependent on how we treat others and who we are, but rather who we are in Jesus. However, there are boundaries of the kingdom of God, not physical boundaries, but moral boundaries that God has called us to. He has saved us out of sin. He has delivered us uh, out of bondage, much like the Israelites in Egypt. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments. We are delivered from our sin, and then we are given the standard that we should strive for. And so, yes, you're secure in the kingdom of God, but there are spiritual boundaries with that context. And to the Corinthians, Paul is saying, you acted out of bounds. You are saints. And so how about you just act like it? You're set apart. And so let's draw attention to some nitty gritty things. And then he greets them. He says, the only way you're going to be able to act like this, my wish for you is that through the grace and peace that you experience from God and Jesus Christ, you'd be able to do this. Grace to you in peace from God through Jesus Christ is how Paul greets them. He's referring to the gracious act of God in which he reconciled humanity to himself through Jesus. And grace and peace go together. The only way that we can have peace with God and in turn peace with others is through the gracious act of God. This is how reconciliation is possible, through grace and peace of God. Normally in this context of this letter, somebody would greet the recipient with good health. Something to the effect of, I hope all is well with you. We still do it today. I hope all is well with you. I hope you are in good health. I hope this letter or this email or this note finds you well. But Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't wish for, uh, for, for good health. He doesn't wish for wellness because he knows the source of wellness. He, he disregards all well wishes and instead provides the answer for ultimate wellness, 
which is grace and peace from God. And so with this, we see that we don't need to be the strongest or the smartest or the most talented or the gifted to experience wellness. We don't need to have all the money in the world. And we don't need to have the best health in the world to be fulfilled. We don't need advancements in culture. We don't need to be successful in our careers. We don't need to consume everything to be fulfilled. Because ultimate fulfillment comes only from the continued presence of God's grace and God's peace found in Jesus Christ at the cross. And so if you are an unbeliever here today, you don't believe in Jesus, might I suggest to you that you consider the peace that's found by embracing the grace of God. May you experience peace today unlike any other peace you've ever experienced for the first time as you walk out that door submitting to Christ. And if you are a believer, may you experience the continued grace. Because our grace that we experience in God is not just for the sinner, but it's also for the saint. Because not only did God graciously grasp you out of the pits of hell that you were dangling over, to this point he has held on to you. And he won't let go. And so we are thankful for his grace that he hasn't let go. Grace to you and peace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the good news of Jesus Christ, Father. We also recognize that the good news, as glorious as it is and as triumphant as it is and as victorious as it is, it was only accomplished because Jesus faced suffering on the cross and he experienced pain and he willingly experienced weakness. And so I pray, Father, that in our life, we would not shy away from the pain and the brokenness, but that we would lean into it and we might grapple, hold unto Christ. And we trust, Lord, that as we share in his sufferings, we will also share in his victory. I thank you for the victories we have experienced in this life, Lord, but let us not forget that the best victory is yet to come when Jesus returns as a coming king. This time, not in weakness and suffering, but in glorious splendor. We look forward to that day and anticipate it, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.